Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Good morning. Thank you. That was, that was hearty. I enjoyed that. Hey, amen, amen. There's a lot to be thankful for this morning and a lot to be joyful for. Would you, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, our blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read them, mark them, learn them, and inwardly digest them that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. O Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Give us grace this morning to receive your truth in faith and love and strength to follow on the path that you set before us. Through Jesus Christ, and in his name we pray, amen. Well, you don't need to believe in Jesus to gain eternal life. At least, according to a growing belief system called transhumanism. Now, I I don't know if you've heard about this, but these people, many of whom are are scientists and uh, science fiction aficionados, claim that within the next hundred years, our technology will be so advanced that we will essentially be able to live forever. Uh, This is a serious thing. They will accomplish this through what is known as nanotechnology. Basically what it is is robots that are the size of the cells of your body. And these robots will essentially be able to build and repair your body as things happen. They, they are getting to the point where they can almost build organs from robotic biological material that will never deteriorate. Once this technology is developed, they'll be able to inject Billions of these robots into your body, into your blood. These robots will heal, rebuild, and maintain all of your organs basically forever. Physical immortality through science. They they believe in this. One transhumanist said this, quote, Someday when the descendants of humanity have spread from star to star, they won't tell the children about the history of ancient earth until they're old enough to bear it. And when they learn, they'll weep to hear that such a thing as death had ever once existed. The dream and aspiration of these people is that death will be abolished by science, by merging humans with robotics, by evolving to the next level of humanity. It's theoretically possible, I suppose, and according to some, may be achieved in some of our lifetimes. This this is the the dream and aspiration of these people. They are are aiming for biological immortality. They they have a driving need to live as long as humanly possible. We see it in a less extreme way, this this same idea, in in all the different longevity movements. There's, There's longevity teas and longevity diets and longevity exercise programs and so on all with the aim of extending your physical life as as long as possible. They're they're aiming for longevity. 
for healthy, happy, long lives. And on the, I mean, on the surface, there's nothing wrong with that. As humans, we have a natural God-given desire to live, and that's a good thing. Even, even if given a choice, a long life is better than a short life, most of us would say. And this is why the, Apostles Paul, the Apostle Paul's attitude strikes us so strangely in the 21st century. See, in the face of all this talk of immortality, longevity, we encounter a man who claims in today's text that death is gain. Death is gain. In other words, in some sense, Paul will say, death is preferable to life. To die is better than to live. Death has some advantage over life. And exactly what that is, is what we'll see in our text this morning. Now, you might remember that last week we looked at a portion of Philippians where Paul was was updating the Philippians on his current circumstances. Remember, he's in prison, but he rejoices because his imprisonment has served to advance the gospel. The aim of his life was to advance the gospel, and so the aim of our lives must be to advance the gospel. So he's in prison. He's chained to a Roman guard awaiting trial before Caesar himself. So that's his, that's his current situation. That is where he is right now as he's writing this. And in today's text, we follow the rest of Paul's thought about his situation. So last week, we looked at Paul's reflections on his current situation. And this week, we're going to see Paul's thoughts and reflections on his future. What is to become of the Apostle Paul? Last week, Paul told them what was happening now. And this week, he looks ahead to the future. Last week, we saw that Paul aimed his life at the advance of the gospel. And this week, we will finally start to understand why. What is his his motivation? What what drives him? What is his inspiration for living this way? And by, by looking at this, we'll gain insight for our own lives of when we seek to aim our lives at the advance of the gospel. What, what should drive us? What does it take to inspire us to that? Well, Paul's secret is simple. He treasures Christ. He loves Jesus Christ. Paul cherishes Christ above all else. That is what fuels his gospel-aimed life. And that is what must fuel ours. Because when your treasure is Christ and his gospel is your treasure, it changes everything. It changes the way that you see the world. That is what happened to the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. And my prayer is that as we observe Paul thinking about his future, that his motivation and his inspiration would be contagious to us. My prayer this morning is that as the Holy Spirit of God would instill in us all a deeper vision and love for Jesus Christ, and that that would overflow out of our lives for the advance of the gospel and would overflow out of that in every area of our lives. So with that, would you turn with me to Philippians chapter 1? What we're going to see here in this text are, are essentially two fruits of a life that treasures Christ. Two fruits of a life that treasures Christ. And the first that we're going to see is this. Treasuring Christ above all else enables Joyful perseverance in the faith to the very end. Treasuring Christ above all else enables joyful perseverance in the faith to the very end. In other words, cherishing Jesus enables the Christian to look toward the future with joy even in the face of certain death. 
Loving Jesus allows us to joyfully hold firm to the faith in the midst of trials and all sorts of conflicts. Look with me at Philippians chapter 1, verse 18. Well, the, the second half of verse 18 says this. We'll be reading through verse 21. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain." See, Paul looked at his situation and rejoiced because the gospel was advancing. We saw that last week. Now he looks to the future and he says, and I will rejoice even at what I see in the future because he knows that no matter what happens, Christ will be honored. And this enables him to rejoice. You see how that works. Paul, Paul treasures Jesus Christ above all else. And so the fact that he knows that Jesus will be honored, says, he says anything that happens I rejoice because Christ will be honored. He knows that in the end, he will stand unashamed before Jesus because Jesus will be honored by his life or death. Because Jesus is his treasure, his hope and joy are in Jesus. So even when his situation is terrible by all human standards and the future of his life is uncertain, he still has hope and he still has joy. In fact, he looks to the future and says, yes, and I will rejoice in what's coming to me. Because his hope and his joy are not found in his circumstances, but in Christ Jesus. And it is this hope and this joy that enables Paul to stand firm in the midst of uncertainty. It is this hope and joy that empowers Paul to push forward, even when his life is, again, from a human perspective, quite pitiful and quite uncertain. He tells us this in verse 19, yes, and I will rejoice, but why does he rejoice? Well, he tells us that in the next verse. For because, for, or because I know, so why does he rejoice? Look at verse, look at verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So Paul knows, he rejoices because he knows that through the prayers of the Philippians, the help of the Holy Spirit, his whole situation will turn out for his deliverance or salvation. In this, he rejoices. This is why he rejoices. Now, we need to know one thing here before we move on in this verse that we must not fly past. Notice, notice this in this verse, verse 19. Notice the immense importance that Paul places on the prayers of the Philippians. He is rejoicing in some sense based on the knowledge that the Philippians are praying for him. In fact, Paul also bases this, the help of the Holy Spirit upon the prayers of the Philippians. And by the help of the Spirit is the means by which this will all turn out for his deliverance. You see the chain of his thinking? You see how much importance he invests in the idea of prayer See how much power he puts in the prayers of the Philippians. I don't know if that strikes you, but, but it struck me as I was reading this. And I think it, it struck me because I know 
in my own life, I often do not put that much emphasis on the power of prayer. In my daily life, as I, as I contemplate my future, as, as I go about my daily tasks, I, I do not think about prayer the way that the Apostle Paul thinks about prayer. And this passage convicts me. I mean, I mean, we can understand the theology of prayer. We can know all the verses to turn to. We can know what the Bible says about prayer. But at the end of the day, I think sometimes our view of prayer is too small. My view of prayer is too small. It's certainly not as big as Paul's here. Paul bases his joy on the fact that the Philippians are praying for him. He knew he would gain the strength he needed to persevere because the Philippians were praying for him. But look what he's saying here. God will work through their prayers. He is confident that God will work in his life because of their prayers for him. It is be through the prayers, it is through the prayers of the Philippians that God will work on Paul's behalf. And I, I know that many of us struggle to pray. We, we struggle to make time for prayer. We struggle to know what to pray for. We say, I'm praying for you, but oftentimes it's just an empty phrase. See, and that's why this passage convicted me, and it convicts us. Why do we struggle with prayer this way? I think it's because we, we don't fully grasp the power of prayer. Deep down in our hearts, we don't necessarily believe that God actually works through prayer. We know that God commands us. We know that it's a privilege. We, we know that we should pray, but I think sometimes we fail to see the connection that God actually works through the prayers of his people. This text shows us this. The man who spread the gospel across the entire Mediterranean world, the man who wrote 13 books of the New Testament, the man who was martyred for his faith in Christ, says he rejoices because he knows that the Philippians are praying for him and he knows that because of this, God will work all of this out for his deliverance. See, Paul isn't relying on his own abilities. And he's also not just relying on an apathetic belief in the sovereignty of God. Well, God's going to do whatever he's going to do. No. Paul rejoices because they are prayers for him. He needs their prayers. Because Paul knows that God uses the prayers of his people to preserve his people. The perseverance of God's saints is accomplished through the prayers of God's saints. God uses the prayers of his people to supply, to provide fresh supplies of his own spirit to help us endure in the faith. God have mercy on us if we excuse our lack of prayer because we believe so much in the sovereignty of God. I've been guilty of that in my own life, but what an unbiblical thought. No, we need to see in this passage this morning the importance and power of prayer. But it's not just this passage. You see, in almost every letter we have of Paul's, he's asking them to pray for him, begging them to pray for him. That is how much he believes in the power of prayer. In Romans 15, he, he says to the saints there, strive together with me in prayers to God. Strive in prayer. In 2 Corinthians 1.11, he says this, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. He says, you, you, you have to pray with us. You have to pray for us so that things will happen. 
In 2 Thessalonians 3, he says this. Listen to the connection. Finally, brothers, sisters, pray for us. That, so that, the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. Again, we see the connection. Pray for us, so that these things will happen. God's gospel will be advanced and I will be delivered from wicked and evil men. Pray so that this will happen. He doesn't just say, well, we're just trusting God and whatever happens, happens. No, he says, pray. You must pray with us so that God's word will move ahead. That's the importance of prayer. Do you view prayer as this important or do you view prayer as something that your life, your faith depends on? Do you, do you think of prayer as, as something that you need from your brothers and sisters? I need you to pray for me. I need it. You must pray. Do you pray this way for others? Often I've been guilty of this. There was a famous preacher who lived in the mid-1800s named Charles Spurgeon. You might have heard of him. They call him the Prince of Preachers because he was arguably one of the greatest preachers of all time. And at the height of his ministry... He was one of the most famous men in the world, and certainly in England. His church was over 10,000 people, I think. And people would often travel long distances all the way across the world just to hear him preach the gospel. Well, on one occasion, five young college students had traveled a long distance to London to hear Spurgeon preach. And as they gathered in line, there's a line outside the church, by the way. What an amazing thing. As they gathered in line... They got there early so they could be the first in line. They met a man. And the man greeted them and said, Gentlemen, let me show you around. Let me give you a tour of the building. Would you like to see the heating plant of this church, the boiler room? They were kind of confused and they weren't particularly interested because this was the middle of July. But they didn't want to offend the stranger, so they consented. The stranger took the young man down a stairway, down into the basement, and quietly opened a door, and their guide whispered, this is the heating plant. Surprised, the students looked on and saw over 700 people bowed in prayer, seeking a blessing on the service that was about to happen. Softly closing the door, the gentleman then introduced himself. It was none other than Charles Spurgeon himself. And this story illustrates for us, in a man like that whose ministry impacted the entire world, what he viewed as the key to the power of his ministry. It was the prayer of his people. The prayer of his people. In other places, he said that the only thing he took comfort in was that his people prayed for him. And that was the thing that empowered his ministry. It's the same, he gets that straight, straight from Scripture. Paul said the same thing. Pray so that God's word will move forward. According to Spurgeon, the power of his preaching, the power of his evangelism, was the prayer of his people. Prayer. God works through prayer. Again, we, we often fail to think this way. I think you, some of you are in the same boat with me. I think this is part of the reason that our lives lack the power that Paul's lacked. Or lack the same power that Paul's had. We lack zeal. We lack love. We lack passion. We lack love for Christ. Perhaps it is because we're not asking for it. Perhaps it is because we're not praying for each other. Let's change that this morning. 
My prayer this week has been, Father, forgive me for my wrong views of prayer. Forgive me for my weak faith in this area and still in me what it means to truly pray. Still in me an appreciation, an understanding of the power of prayer like the Apostle Paul had, like Spurgeon had. Bring me to a place where, where I view prayer as something I need, that I, that I beg for. Let us, let us catch a vision this morning of, of what this could be. Let us strive together in prayer as the Apostle Paul calls us to. Let us depend on prayer. Let us need prayer just like the Apostle Paul. See that in verse 19. And so Apostle, the Apostle Paul believes that, that through the Philippians' prayer, the Holy Spirit will help him and it will all turn out for his deliverance. But what, is, what does that mean? What, what type of deliverance is Paul hoping for? What is Paul's hope? Well, verse 20, he, he tells us, this is his hope, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul's confident hope can be sun, summed up in one word, vindication, vindication. Paul's hope, his, his eager expectation, his confidence is that he will be vindicated on the last day by Christ himself and that whatever happens in his life will honor Christ, whether he lives or dies. Remember, he's, he's about to stand trial for capital crimes against the state. He very well could be executed. He doesn't know. And he basically says, I don't care because Christ will vindicate me on the last day. He's about to come before Caesar, the great emperor of Rome. In essence, he says, I, I, don't, I don't care what Caesar thinks. He can kill me. I don't care. Jesus will vindicate me on the last day. Jesus will declare me not guilty, even if Caesar declares me guilty. And this is why Paul will endure. He will joyfully endure the mocking, the beatings, the ridicule, the awkwardness, the poverty, the false accusations. He will endure this because he knows that they are temporary. He knows that these opinions in the end don't really matter. He knows that the only thing that matters is Jesus and his opinion of Paul. The only thing that truly matters is Jesus Christ and his gospel. And it is evident in this text that Paul treasures Christ and Christ alone. Jesus' glory and magnification is Paul's goal. It is evident even in his grammar. Look, look at the text. Look, look at verse 20. Look at it in your Bibles. Look what he says. He says, now he's talking about himself, right? So you would expect him maybe to say, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, I will honor Christ in my body, whether by life or by death. But that's not what he says. He phrases it differently. He doesn't say, I will honor Christ in my body. He says, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And it's, Paul, Paul is so irrelevant in his own eyes that he won't even make the, himself the subject of a sentence. When it comes to the honor of Christ, no, Christ is the subject. It's a subtle difference that simply highlights the fact that Christ reigns supreme in Paul's life. It highlights the fact that Paul treasures Christ above all else. Paul sees himself merely as a tool in the divine hand. Paul sees himself merely as a servant in whom Christ will be glorified either in his living or dying. And he says, whatever that is, Christ be glorified. 
This is why Paul, possibly facing execution, faces it with joy. Because he is living his life with his eyes on Christ. And on that day when he will stand before him, then this sets everything in perspective for the Apostle Paul. Paul gave up everything to follow Christ. His life was awful by human perspective. Paul's eyes were set on eternity. This is why he was so driven. And this is why he was so full of joy in the midst of a terrible life. Again, from human perspective. But don't we often get that backwards? Don't we often try to think as little of death as possible? Don't we often try to think as little of the return of Christ as possible? As little of the day of judgment as possible? Just, just focus on the here and now and, and, and worry about that when we get there. If we do that, we, we miss the entire point. We, we miss out on the power that drove Paul. And I think that's why it's sometimes hard to under, for us to understand what Paul does and what he thinks and the choices he makes. It's, it's hard for us to understand why he sees death as an advantage. It's hard for us to see why, why Paul would choose a life of pain and suffering. And yet in the midst of that, be joyful. Paul answers us in this text because I know that it will all turn out for my salvation and that Christ will be honored in my body, whether by living or dying. See, because Paul treasured Christ above all else, which enabled him to give up everything and live a life that was worthy of Christ. He explains that in the next verse, verse 21. He says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's the climax of this whole entire section. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Here he answers the question why he doesn't care that much about the outcome of his trial. Why? Because if he lives, he's going to live for Christ, and if he dies, well, I gain anyway. Either way, Paul knows what he's going to do. Either way, Paul says, I get something I desire. It's like someone asking you, what do you want, pizza or tacos? Yeah, I mean, either way, I win. That, it's the same thing. To live, okay, Christ. To die, I'm with Christ anyway. I gain. To live is Christ. It's two words in Greek. Four in English. No clearer statement of the Christian life could be found anywhere. To live is Christ. This must be our confession, the cry of our hearts, the guiding principle of our life. To live is Christ. What does it mean? means that knowing Christ is the highest goal of our lives. It means that gaining Christ is worth the loss of all things. It means forsaking anything and everything to follow Christ. It means that Jesus commands our life and our decisions. It means that we live our lives according to his words. It means that Christ is the ultimate purpose, the ultimate meaning, and the ultimate goal of our existence. It means that we actually believe the words that we just sung, all glory be to Christ our King. All glory be to Christ alone. There is no higher goal, no higher meaning, no higher purpose. To live is Christ. This is why Paul's life was aimed at the advance of the gospel. This is why Paul could rejoice in prison as long as the gospel is advancing. Because his life wasn't his own. His life was Christ's. 
as long as Paul has breath in his lungs, he would live for Christ. Whether he's in prison or not, he's living for Christ. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. See, for Paul, death has an advantage over life. You might say, well, yeah, Paul, for you, death is gain. Your life stinks. But my life's not that bad, so death can't be gain for me. But that's missing the point. It's not what he's saying. Paul is not saying death is gain for him because it will just relieve him of his physical pain. By the way, have you ever thought about what the Apostle Paul might have looked like in real life? Beaten countless times, stoned over three times. He's been shipwrecked over three times, exposed, starved. He must have just looked terrifying. But that's not what he's saying. He's not saying, well, death is gain because, you know, my knees hurt and then I'll just be, I'll be better. No, that's not what he's saying. That's an added benefit, I'm sure, but that's not his point. See, for Paul, death is gain because in death, we saw it in 2 Corinthians, he will be with Christ. That is why death is gain. That is why death is profit for the Apostle Paul. That is why he can laugh in the face of the Roman emperor and say, okay, kill me. I gain, I win, I profit from that. I'm not worried about that. It's the good news. The good news is this, if you have faith in Christ, if you treasure Christ, death is gain for you as well. This is not just for the Apostle Paul. This is one of the many beauties of the Christian life. We serve a risen Savior, a Savior over whom death had no power for us. And for us alone, death is simply a gateway to life directly in the presence of our beloved Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, Now, here, while we are alive, while we breathe, we live for Christ. But there is a sense in in which, in this life, we are distant from Him. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5. We read it this morning, but it's a couple verses here. Listen, he says, We know that while we are at home in the body, in other words, in this life, we are away from the Lord. So there's a sense in which we're away from God in this life. We walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That's the same sentiment there. He says, when we die, we will be away from the body at home with the Lord. At home. You see, death is, the, death is gain. It's a profit for the believer because it is the doorway to being with Christ. Paul knew this. He knew this. He believed this. That's why he lived his life the way that he did. That's why he could risk his life. Worst case, die, be with Jesus. Okay, let's go. Do you, do you know this? Do you believe this in your heart of hearts? Do you, do you live your life as if death is gain? Take comfort this morning in the fact, believer, that when you die, you will be at home with the Lord, at home with Christ, and will one day be resurrected. The Puritans understood this. John Flavel, one of the Puritans, Put it this way. I think I have a slide for this. Either way. Let's look at what he says about death. He says, Death to the saints is the door by which they enter into the enjoyment of God. The dying Christian is almost at home. Yet a few pangs and agonies more, and then he has come to God, in whose presence is the fullness of joy. The same day we loose from this shore, we shall be landed upon the blessed shore where we shall see 
and enjoy God forever. That's it. As a Christian, if you don't see death this way this morning, you're not believing the scripture. You, you need to re, re, I don't know, renew your view of death. The start of the word, I didn't know what I was saying. You are missing out on the comfort that Jesus provides for you in the gospel. Jesus conquered death so that you no longer have to fear it. Be encouraged this morning, Christian. Death is gain. And actually, it's more than that. In verse 23, Paul says that to die and be with Christ is far better. It's much better than to live. That's the cry. That's the belief of a man who treasures Christ, who cherishes Christ, who knows Christ. And this enabled Paul to endure all things with joy. Because treasuring Christ above all else enables joyful perseverance in the faith to the very end. But there's another implication here of treasuring Christ. And it's found in the next couple of verses. And it's this, treasuring Christ above all else enables self-sacrificial service to others. Treasuring Christ above all else enables us to serve others. In other words, if you, if you live for Christ, if your life is Christ, then you are free to pour your life out for other people. The more Christ-like you become, the more selfless you become. Those who love Christ more than anything love others with everything. Let's look at verse 22 through 26. Paul continues, he says this, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. Remember, he's speaking of life and death. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is, is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus, because of my coming to you again. Do you see that? Paul says, to be honest, I prefer death. Now, he's not saying he's going to kill himself. This isn't a suicidal thing. The word choose could be a little bit confusing. It's prefer. Which do I prefer? To live or to die? He says, if I'm honest, I'd rather die. I'd rather go before Caesar and him say, you're guilty, off to the executioner. Great. He says, that would be my preference. If, if, I, if I could pick, I would choose that. Just think about that for a second. But, he says, because I know that my being alive will be better for you, I'm convinced that God will spare me. Because Christ is Paul's highest goal, he is able to put the needs of others before his preferences, even in matters of life and death. In other words, and, and here's where it comes full circle from last week. Because Paul treasures Christ, the aim of his life is the advance of the gospel. And so he says, if there's still work for me to accomplish, and he says, basically, I believe there is, I'll live, even though it's not what I prefer. And he's not just going to live in retirement. He's, he's going to get back out on the road. From what we can tell, Paul most likely was not executed on this imprisonment and made it all the way to Spain eventually. But that's what he's saying here. He gladly puts the needs of the Philippian church above and beyond his own preferences, even in life and death. 
Paul would rather just die already and be with Christ. But, but because he treasures Christ, he will continue to work for the advance of the gospel with everything that he has, for the progress of the gospel amongst the Philippians. In all of this, everything that we've seen this morning flows from the singular truth. Paul treasures Christ. It's his highest treasure. It's his highest goal. It's the purpose to which he looks. It's the meaning of his existence. He loves Christ with everything that he has. You look at his life, all of the crazy stuff that he did, all of the suffering that he endured, all of the imprisonments, all of the beatings, all of the shipwrecks. You ask Paul, why? Why? You know what his answer would be? Jesus. It's all for Jesus. It's all for Jesus. He would say, do you know what he did for me? Do you know that he saved me? Do you know that he redeemed me? Do you know that he purchased me with his blood and sent me on mission? So because of that, Paul can say, to live is Christ. To die is gain. Paul would tell you, did you know that I deserved hell? I was persecuting the church. I was persecuting Christ. And in the midst of my persecution of Jesus, He saved me. He forgave me. And He sent me out. And that's the same story for everyone here who claims the name of Christ. Romans tells us that while we were enemies of God, Christ saved us. Jesus came to seek sinners See, and that is the realization, the realization of the grace of God, the radical grace of God, the fact that God loves us, put his love on us and purchase us before we ever even knew. That is the realization that fuels a life filled with Christ, a life that is aimed at the advance of the gospel, a life that is aimed at the glory and honor of God alone. The amazing grace of God. It changes everything. Paul treasured Christ and and everything else in his life flowed out of that. And here's where, I think this is where a lot of us us miss this. Because we we hear a sermon like this and we, we kind of interpret it as a bunch of stuff that we need to do. Okay, well, I need to do more then. I need to recommit my life. I need to try harder. I'm going to read my Bible tomorrow. Right? It's, and there's some truth in those things. We all need to grow in our faith. But, but again, that, that type of thinking misses the point. So I want you to hear this. In this passage, everything we've talked about this morning is only accomplished because Paul treasures Christ. Everything else is simply an overflow of Paul's life. Everything is an overflow of his love for Jesus. So, so if you hear this sermon, your first reaction is just to feel guilty and not good enough or okay okay I'll try harder that's right okay you're missing the point the the reason our lives don't look like the apostle Paul's is is not because we don't try hard enough it's it's not because we we don't feel guilty enough it's not because we haven't recommitted our lives enough times it's not because we don't read our bibles enough those things those things may contribute the the reason is is because we don't see Christ as glorious enough We don't have a big enough vision of who Jesus is, of the greatness and mercy of God. 
We don't understand the depth of his love for us enough. If you don't see death as gain, it's not that you need to try harder. You can't white-knuckle your way into seeing death as gain. If the aim of your life is not the advance of the gospel, you can't try harder to make it. There's a deeper issue. We, We don't see Christ as precious enough. We don't understand his love for us. We take in grace for granted. That's the real issue. We need a bigger vision of who God is. We need a bigger vision of Christ. We need a deeper experience of his love for us. We need a greater appreciation for the gospel. You see, treasuring Christ, treasuring the gospel is, is the foundation in the heart of the Christian life. It is the fuel. The fruit is the way that you live your life. So if you have a problem with the fruit, you need to go back to the foundation. If you don't treasure Christ enough, and obviously there's there's many senses in which none of us treasure Christ enough because he's infinitely worthy. That's why we constantly need to preach the gospel to ourselves. So if we don't treasure Christ enough, just trying to live the Christian life harder isn't going to work. It's like trying to grow a branch that's been cut off the vine. It's the power of the flesh. But if you love Christ... You will want to obey. You will want to evangelize. You will want to love your brothers and sisters. You will live out of God's love for you. You will be gracious. You will see death as gain because Christ is your treasure. If you live out of God's love in Christ, you will do this step by step, if ever so slowly as you stumble and bump along the path of faith. But if you live, and this is our reaction, if you live to get God to love you. Not only will you fail, but your life will be marked by spiritual exhaustion. You'll become bitter and judgmental and joyless. See, trying to live the Christian life and obey God without treasuring and cherishing Christ, it's like like trying to go up an escalator the wrong way. It's exhausting and you're fighting against everything. You you can't just do the Christian life like that. Because it's got to be spirit-filled. The love of Christ, the spirit of Christ must carry us forward if we are going to do this. Stop and remember the grace of God. But you might say, well, I'm not there. What what do I do? Pray. We, We remember what we saw earlier this morning in our text. Prayer is powerful. Pray that God would open your heart. Pray, pray that God would reveal himself more to you. Pray that God would increase your love for him. Pray that God would give you a vision of Christ so amazing that would just inflame the love in your heart for him. Humbly pray and God will answer. And there's a sense in which sometimes we hear that and we think, okay, but I want something practical. But again, I would encourage you, go back to what we said earlier. Oftentimes we lack love because we don't believe in the power of prayer. Prayer is how God works. Pray and God will answer. But you also need to pray this morning if you're here and and you don't have faith in Christ. Because if you're here this morning and you don't believe in Christ, you have not bowed the knee to Christ, then, then it's clear, the scriptures are clear, death is not gain for you. Scriptures teach us that those who die without faith in Christ will die in their sins, under the judgment of God, under the wrath of God. The word of God teaches us that apart from Christ, you will die and experience eternal condemnation. 
But the amazing thing is, just as the Apostle Paul was saved, anyone who turns to faith in Christ will be saved. God has accomplished salvation in the life, death, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. Full forgiveness is found in Jesus for anyone and everyone who turns, puts their faith in Him. So I would call you to that this morning if you don't know Christ. Turn from yourself and cast yourself upon the mercy of Christ. Cry out to God in prayer for salvation. Cry out to God in prayer for mercy. You will find Him to be a good and perfect Savior. How will you do this? By depending on each other in prayer. By depending on the grace of God. And with our eyes focused on Christ. In community, we will persevere to the end, advancing the gospel and the cause of Christ. I want to end with Paul's words from Ephesians 3. So here's what I want to do. Would you bow your head and just just let these words wash over you? Bow your head and just let the words of the Apostle Paul be, be a balm to your weary soul this morning. Paul says this in Ephesians 3. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come together, we, we meet this morning, we gather as your people, a people who claim the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, a people who have seen a vision of the glorious truth of your Son, Jesus. So Father, my prayer this morning is simple. Would you just grow the love in our hearts for Jesus? Would you grow our faith this morning? Would you give us a deeper love for Christ? Would you give us a love for Christ so deep that our lives would be changed? As we go about our, our day, we would be filled with prayer for each other and that we would live in a way that advances the gospel and evidences the greatness and worthiness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We know that it is only by your grace that we can do any of this. It is only by your power, your energy, your spirit that we do any of this. And so we humbly depend upon you in prayer. And we acknowledge, Lord, that if if you don't work in us, we will fail. Preserve us, Heavenly Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. 
You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.